Also, I didn't know you had a political science degree, Amy. Huh? I didn't know you had a political science degree. No, we discussed this in a previous episode, and you mocked oh, me. Oh, probably, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but it's hard to remember all the times I've mocked you, Amy. <laughs> yeah, well, I babe? admit... No. Yes. No, no, this is called... It's banter, honey. It's rich banter. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Don't Touch Your Face, Foreign Policy's weekly podcast on the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Amy McKinnon, a staff writer with Foreign Policy. And I'm James Palmer, a deputy editor. On this week's episode, when we talk about countries that have successfully contained their coronavirus outbreaks, we often mention Taiwan, New Zealand, Finland, Iceland, and they all share one thing in common, and that is that they're led by women. So are women leaders just better at handling this crisis, or is there something else going on here? To discuss this, we'll be joined by Dr. Susie Wiles, a microbiologist in New Zealand, as well as Betsy Fisher-Martin, the Executive Director of the Women in Politics Institute at American University. But first this. The coronavirus has swept the world and forced drastic measures to defeat it. It's also proving, though, what is possible in the fight against another major global threat, climate change. Heat of the Moment is a new series by FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. It tells the story of those on the front lines of changing the way that we eat, travel, and live our lives. This podcast outlines not only the great challenges that face us, but also looks for a new path forward. Look for Heat of the Moment wherever you get your podcasts. So, James, what do you make of this question? Is it just a coincidence that countries with women in high executive office are doing a good job at nailing the coronavirus or is something else? I don't think it's a coincidence exactly, but I don't think it's attributable to anything particular about women themselves. The sort of idea that they're, you know, they're naturally more nurturing or this. Mm. I think it's much more that the kinds of societies that produce female leaders are also mm-hmm. more likely to be the kinds of societies that handle the coronavirus relatively well. That is, open with less toxic political cultures, mm-hmm. um, with greater representation as a whole, and that tends to come with things like stronger health services, better concern, all this sort of thing. And then there's just been you know, a little bit of element of coincidence in there too. I mean, at some level, I think Taiwan and... New Zealand being islands probably matters more than having a yeah. female leader, for instance. And there's actually just a very small sample size that makes it hard to draw empirical conclusions from. Like I looked it up and according to Statista, as of January this year, there were just 17 countries where women held the highest positions of executive power. So it's a pretty small pool that we have to look at. Exactly. And again, they, those tend to be fairly rich countries too, fairly well-off countries which also makes a difference. But I do think that also perhaps female leaders as a whole just tend to be more competent because Mm. the the standard, you know, that you have to reach to compete against uh, male politicians is obviously higher um, because women face so much more shit on the way up. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, you look at somebody like Tsai Ing-wen in in Taiwan um, Mm -hmm. who, you know, has really lent into not just being a female leader but a single female leader. She sort of makes a campaign point about having two cats 
and this kind of thing. Um, yeah. But, you know, she's a hugely talented politician. She's just way out in front of any of her male contemporaries. And I think in some ways, if you look at South Korea, which of course doesn't have a female leader, it almost kind of proves that point because most South Korean analysts, I think, would say that if the coronavirus had hit five years ago, when the country's past female leader, Park Geun-hee, was in power, it would have been a disaster. Right, so that's the exception that proves the rule then. Yes, and I think it proves it because Park was the daughter of a former dictator of Korea. And it was mm. essentially her family status that let her get to the top without really any talent. I mean, she was a, a terrible leader and she was enthralled to this kind of like cult. She was basically a political puppet in some ways, but also mm -hmm. had these strong dictatorial elements herself. But she'd really only got to that place because of who her father was, right, rather right. than through her own sort of talents and motivation, like the leaders who performed effectively. And so she'd and, been more able to fail upwards in, the, in a yeah, way. Yeah, she'd failed upwards in a way that normally only men men get to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and because of that, when disasters happened in Korea under her premiership she completely botched them. So the sinking of a ferry, for instance, which became this huge national scandal, which was just um, mishandled at every level by her, the MERS crisis, so the mm -hmm. Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome was famously mishandled, fortunately was nowhere near as bad as the coronavirus in terms of the nature of the disease itself. Whereas this time, South Korea has had this really competent, coherent response, in part because of kind of kicking out the old and starting over and having this very competent, like liberal technocratic regime. Mm -hmm. Like you look at Merkel, I mean, Merkel is obviously, again, the, the epitome of that like fantastically tough, talented female leader who rules despite all the obstacles, but she's also a highly competent technocrat leading a highly competent technocratic government. Yeah, I saw a, uh, there was a tweet that went viral earlier this month um, and someone was saying, if you're wondering why the US is doing a worse job of responding to the coronavirus than Germany. It's because Germany is led by a former quantum chemist and uh, America is led by a former reality TV host. <laughs> yeah, and I, th I think there's a, a lot of truth in that. I think one of the things that we you know, that haven't confronted is that at the root of the US things is just that the federal government is this atrophied and at this point, you know, a politicized, corrupted and wrecked institution with no capacity to respond efficiently to disaster. And, you know, it's not a coincidence that America picked the male leader instead of the female one at the last election, or at least the mm. Electoral College did. But you get what you voted for. So going back to what you said earlier about the kinds of countries that tend to elect women um, have other mm. factors which have helped them cope with the coronavirus, like in being, they tend to be wealthier, they tend to be more democratic. But then how do you explain Sweden? It's the only Nordic mm. country to actually not have a female leader right now. And their caseload is just streets ahead of their neighbours. How do you explain that? Well, Sweden chose not to adopt lockdown methods. It essentially did this kind of semi-herd immunity strategy where the idea was to hope to encourage some degree of social distancing but keep stuff open and allow the disease to sort of go through the population. Mm -hmm. And this just doesn't seem to have worked. It was a failed strategy. You know, there are plenty of reckless women out there and there are plenty of cautious men. Um, mm -hmm. But perhaps certain kind of masculine leadership styles do push things in that direction. Well, I mean, we have seen, like, there's been this fantastic 
terrifying flourishing of uh, the kind of the macho dictator type in the face of this. I'm thinking particularly of like Bolsonaro in Brazil, of Alexander Lukashenko and um, Belarus, who just seem to think that by, I don't know, sheer force of, of will and testosterone, that they can just stare this virus down and it will just somehow crumple in their wake. Exactly. And I think that is very distinctly gendered. I mean, you know, you get mm. the odd sort of female dictator figure. I mean, Argentina and so on, or semi-dictator figure, but it's hard to imagine them adopting quite those tactics. And I think what's been yeah. interesting is that we've seen that all over the political spectrum of that kind of machismo too. You don't just have Bolsonaro, you have even somebody like AMLO in Mexico, mm -hmm. uh, who's not, who, you know, is a democratically elected left populist, but was really kind of dismissing the virus. Or Ortega in also in Latin America, where, again, uh, a left-wing leader, one, though an aged one who's been in power for a long time, um, mm. but completely, you know, sort of in denial about the virus. Yeah, um, well, he vanished for a month. I, don't, I saw that yeah. a couple of weeks ago. They just He hadn't been seen in public for about a month, and everyone was like, huh, what about that? Well, there's this thing, too, I think, whereby if you have that kind of, you know, very leader-centered system, of course, getting sick is politically risky. Like, mm. when you get sick is when people pull off, like, coups against you and undermine your rule and all this kind of thing. So whereas for all his flaws, Boris Johnson could safely go to hospital and be fairly confident the Chancellor of the Exchequer would not seize power while he was incapacitated. In a lot of places, that just isn't possible, and so you can't admit that sort of sickness. Well, one country which has been credited with not just flattening the curve, but just smashing it altogether, is New Zealand, which is led by Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. And to find out how they did it, I spoke to Dr. Susie Wiles, a microbiologist who's based in New Zealand. So I've seen headlines about New Zealand, you know, not flattening the curve, but smashing the curve. And as you say, moving towards elimination, which speaking to you from the United States just seems to be utterly unthinkable for us here. What has New Zealand done, do you think, to be able to achieve this incredible success? Well, so I guess the first thing was um, looking at what was happening in other countries. And, you know, we were all in the same boat in those early days. So we'd seen what had mm. happened in China and that China had, you know, the, 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 the outbreak there, the way that it was controlled was by, you know, lockdown. So what New Zealand was watching was that, was also watching... Italy getting to the stage where they were overwhelming the health system and so it was like okay this is going to happen pretty much the same way it's happening in China uh, if you go down that path of not acting soon enough but it, we were also watching countries that were controlling it so countries like Taiwan which were doing very different things and that was all about stopping the spread did you have the ability to do contact tracing really fast could you stop that human-to-human -human transmission and so our prime minister was, you know, at first on the, okay, well, we just need to slow everything down. But then when we saw what was happening in other countries and that you could actually, you know, if you stop transmission, you could stop it. Then we wanted to be more like that, like Taiwan than anything else. And so the question then was, what can we do that would allow us to remove, you know, stop cases entirely rather than just allow them to happen, but to allow them to happen at a slow pace. And it's been fascinating watching countries all have pretty much the same evidence and take very different courses through that. And so whether that's to do with um, what each country or each cabinet or leader values is one thing. 
um, I think. But it's it's been a very interesting exercise in seeing that. And I think for the public as well, going, but, you know, is there different evidence? Have you been using different evidence? And actually, you can use the same evidence and still act in very different ways. That's interesting. So do you think, I mean, is there something inherent to New Zealand's leadership? Is it Jacinda Ardern specifically, or is it to do with a kind of broader political culture? What was it, do you think, that made New Zealand look at this growing body of evidence from China and Italy and say, hold on a minute? This is what we need to do. Whereas, you know, a lot of countries in Europe, the United States failed to take the same lessons from China's experience. I think so. Before I answer that, I also want to say that we had the advantage of time. So mm. we were we knew we were running behind everybody else or lots of other countries. Right. We knew that. Um, mm-hmm. um, and so there, it was the it was a kind of a case of we know this is coming when is it coming and when do you act in a way to stop it that isn't too soon or too late so that's kind of the thing that was also going on at the time it was ah um i think it's really clear from how our opposition politicians are behaving and have behaved that if we had a different party in power uh, and certainly if we had the leader of the opposition in power now it would have been really different so whether that's to do with Jacinda herself or whether that's to do with just her values and the values of her cabinet, because remember, it's also her cabinet that are making the decision. So mm-hmm. she's not a dictatorship. <laughs> it, it is a group thing. Um, but whether it's that collective difference in values, because she also made really clear very early on when she brought in the alert levels and when she talked about how we were going to do this, it was very clear that loss of life, that, that people mattered and that we mm-hmm. were the economy. And mm-hmm. so it was a sort of a false um, kind of false argument to make that that it was either human health or the economy. So she kind of said that really early on. It's a false argument. Uh, we, are, we value human life. And so that's the approach that we're going to take. And that's right. what she did. And so whether that's, yeah, whether that's her as a woman and the and the cabinet that she has, or whether that's just her as a human being and the cabinet that she has, um, are are difficult questions to answer, right? Because I think we could be, we would be in a different position if we did have a different cabinet and we did have a different leader. Could you just expand on, for our listeners that aren't familiar, how the opposition party have responded to the pandemic? They've done everything they could to criticise the response in the early days. So it was very much, you aren't moving fast enough, you aren't moving fast enough. And then Mm -hmm. now it's, you move too fast, it's too hard, um, you're, you know, damaging the economy. So the economy has always been their arguing point that we have to protect the economy. uh, And they're still doing it now saying, okay, now we've sorted it out. Now we need to move out of the levels as soon as possible because we have to get the economy back and running. And Jacinda Ardern's leadership style, her public facing leadership style, at least, has been distinct from other world leaders during this, you know, by doing things like these Facebook lives from home where she's, you know, looking very casual, wearing a sweatshirt <laughs> like the rest of us, um, you know, going on stage, declaring the Easter Bunny an essential worker. Has that helped to build public confidence in the New Zealand government's coronavirus response? I think it has. It's also worth remembering that this is not um, this is not a COVID specific thing. So this is this is actually who she is. I mean, she genuinely mm. is a lovely human being, 
And so we've seen this with all of the other things that have happened in New Zealand. You know, in I mean, it's it's sort of astonishing that in her time as prime minister, we have had a volcanic eruption, the largest terrorist attack on our soil. Um, what else have we had? Uh, it's just been, you know, amazing. And so with every mm-hmm. one of those things, she has behaved as she as a human being behaves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, and she's just doing that with, with COVID-19. She's just being genuinely who she is, which is somebody who is, you know, um, who doesn't put on a front. You know, there are people going, oh, she's just doing it, you know, for politics. But actually, if you meet her, that's mm-hmm. exactly what she's like. You know, whether there's cameras there or not, that's exactly what she's like. So she's just being who she is. And what is just wonderful about this is that it shows that there are different ways to be a leader. Mm-hmm. You know, that we have, and whether these are gendered or not, I think is um, is is sort of missing the point almost. Because it's not like men can't do these things either. Of course, right? yeah. It's just that we've had, for a very long time... We've had a, a, you know, we're all kind of programmed to think of leaders as as having certain qualities, qualities which it turns out in times like these are not great qualities to have, and that actually yes. this ability to bring us all together. I mean, she talks about the team all the time. You know that we're a team of five million, um, and it's all of us acting together that get through this. Mm-hmm. The other thing she's done that's really important is that she has not um, declared war on COVID nineteen. When you when you talk about being at war with the virus, it means that people who die have kind of somehow failed mm-hmm. that they you know mm-hmm. they they've lost the battle, and people who have it are kind of the enemy. Yes, and so it does this really awful thing where I think it puts us all in a negative frame of mind, and it and it sort of pits us against things, and it stigmatizes people who who have it. And what she did was she said, you know, our slogan here is unite against COVID nineteen. That is the message that we're getting all the time. And so her talk about this being a team effort where she uses none of the language that stigmatizes people, I think has been also a really big part of of changing how we all um, feel about this and that it is, and you know, and making it this collective effort where we can all play our part. You know, and it's been very interesting being in lockdown and realizing who are the essential workers. I mean, the essential workers, many are... Uh, are on minimum wage and you know all of these kinds of things and yet we wouldn't be able to survive without them so again as somebody who's working from home it's very confronting (laughs) oh okay I'm not essential (laughs) you know Um, and I would hope that you know I mean that's straight out of my microbiology um, path here but as a human being I would hope that this really gives everybody some uh, pause for thought about about values and about who we value, and I would really hope that some changes are made moving forward. That was Dr. Susie Wiles. So we've used a pretty crude barometer here in discussing countries and gender and and coronavirus, and that is just who has women in charge at the very top in the president or the prime minister position. But that's not actually necessarily that correlated with how empowered women are politically in a country. And so when I was doing research for today's episode, I came across um, the Council on Foreign Relations has a women's power index, which looks at a whole variety of different factors to kind of rank countries on women's political empowerment. And Mm -hmm. so they looked at things like uh, the current head of state, whether they've had previous female heads of state, you know, gender balance in the cabinet and the legislature and the local legislature. Um, and it was really interesting, actually. And there were some expected uh, results there. Uh, the Nordic countries tend to fare very well, but 
Can you guess which country did the best in the index, which is almost completely gender balanced in both the cabinet, national legislature, national legislature candidates and local legislature? No, not a clue. Give- it's Costa Rica. Um, Costa Rica's cabinet is 52% women. The national legislature is 46%. Candidates for that were 49% women and the local legislature is 46%. Wow. Pretty interesting. Yeah. Congratulations um, to Costa Rica. I know. How are they, ha- how are they handling the virus? Uh, that sounds like a fe- piece we should commission at foreignpolicy.com. <laughs> at foreignpolicy.com, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's your moment, Costa Rican writers. So, all three of you listening to this. No. Um, but anyway, this is all just a long wind up to say this is actually really interesting, this index, and I'll include it in the show notes today on our website. Um, so go and look for that. But, you know, just to say that we are perhaps being a bit crude in looking at countries that have women at the top and not looking at the broader spectrum of women's empowerment in the countries. And then if you look at it like that and try and correlate women's empowerment politically with the coronavirus response, the picture you get is a lot more patchy. Um, and it's difficult to draw this very straight line that we've been doing. I mean, I think that makes sense because, of course, a lot of the countries that have generally done better have been in Europe, which is one of the hardest hit places from mm. the outbreak. And, you know, and there's really this, you know, there's so much that goes into this, the coronavirus pattern, so much we don't know. I was looking today at the seeming lack of real numbers in Cambodia. I mean, not just because of a lack of testing, but it just doesn't seem to be taking off there. Everybody's expected it to, and it just hasn't. And that's absent, you know, any kind of competent leadership on the part of Mm. the Cambodian government with huge ties to China, all this kind of thing. Um, But something appears to have stopped it really taking off there. Yeah. In short, correlation does not imply causation. Oh, very good. But I think ultimately the point which we just heard from Susie Wiles there um, was a good one, that it's not really explicitly about the gender of the leader that makes the difference, but it's the kinds of qualities which we expect and even allow certain leaders to have which are at play here. And that, you know, societies have historically tended to look to male leaders for this kind of macho war fighting strong leadership and you know women leaders often thought of as being kind of caring and and collaborative you know whether or not those are explicitly female characteristics those are the kinds of leadership skills which are certainly playing out better in the pandemic. And to help answer some of these questions further, I spoke to Betsy Fisher-Martin, who is Executive Director of the Women in Politics Institute at American University. So Betsy, first of all, thank you for joining us. Um, And I just wanted to ask, I mean, what do you think is at play here? Is gender a factor here or is something else happening? Well, I think what we're finding out is qualities like the ability to clearly communicate, maintain your composure, showing empathy, compassion, being able to work together with others, being civilized, and and being able to take decisive action. Those are all good qualities to have in a crisis. Mm -hmm. And so what we're seeing now are some of these uh, female leaders um, that are exhibiting these kind of qualities um, that are more typically associated with female leadership. And we're seeing that that really pays dividends. I mean, do you think that we risk playing into negative stereotypes by having these kind of discussions? Should should we just look at leaders for for who they are rather than for the gender that they happen to be? 
Well, I think it's healthy whenever we're talking about leadership to mm. kind of look at good examples of what's out there. And those can yeah. certainly be among women and certainly among men. There's plenty of, um, you know, exceptional male leaders as well. And so I think it's a healthy conversation to have when we think about what are these qualities that uh, successful leaders possess um, mm-hmm. And if it does come down to, you know, having to look at different genders and maybe dispel some of the stereotypes that are out there that I think people somehow see when it relates to women as them not being, um, uh, you know, suited for executive leadership positions, I think it's helpful to point out that maybe some of those qualities that um, get discussed more often than not are actually good qualities for leaders to have. Right, because if anything, I mean, this has proven that, you know, female leaders have done a pretty outstanding job of handling one of the biggest crises to face the globe in our lifetimes, certainly. Yeah, and I think that what we're learning from some of these women and really what they're teaching us is that compassion, humanity counts, Mm -hmm. uh, clarity counts. Um, You don't have to be um, sort of the typical, strong, you know, aggressive, um, sort of the more hard-nosed approach um, to actually govern in an effective way. I suppose to turn the question on its head a little bit, to what extent do you think that if these qualities which, you know, seem to have worked extremely well for, for women leaders, such as being relatable, accessible, using language like we instead of I... Do you think that if if male leaders pursued a strategy like that, it would be as effective or would they be seen as weak? No, I mean, it's a good point. Um, and certainly we've seen, you know, there's certainly male leaders out there that have been, um, you know, effective and, you know, embracing leadership in their own style. Um, but for the moment, um, the women that are doing this are being very effective and I think more authentic to themselves. And I think at the end of the day, um, you know, they, that pays off for people, um, when you have leaders who, um, you know, can step up and, um, and maybe it's motivating people in a different way. You know, maybe there is, um, you know, other approaches that that's effective. Um, but my point is that the, the women that are doing this are, are finding that um, people are definitely responding to it. That was Betsy Fisher-Martin, the Executive Director of the Women in Politics Institute at American University. Hey, listeners, it turns out that our collective action can stop more than just global pandemics. Discover reasons for hope on the climate crisis with Heat of the Moment a new series from FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. Look for it wherever you get your podcasts. So I think, you know, it's funny thinking of somebody who was seen as kind of a macho female leader like Margaret Thatcher, who, of course, Mm. made her, really made her name in the Falklands, in the the Iron Lady. Those qualities were kind of contrasted with her femininity, like her toughness, determination, willingness to kill Argentine conscripts, this kind of thing. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's funny, if you look at the history of disasters and leadership during her premiership, in fact, you often find her playing this much more almost nurturing or collaborative role than you would expect from mm. Margaret Thatcher. So, for instance, towards the end of the hunt for the Yorkshire Ripper, she became convinced that the police didn't care about the woman who were being killed in the way that she did because she was the, a mother um, mm. and was on the phone to them mm. kind of sort of threatening to come down and take over the police investigation personally and run the hunt for the Yorkshire Ripper unless they pulled their thumbs out. Wow. Yeah. These odd little bits of people's characters 
emphasize how messy and complicated gender realities actually are in terms of how yeah. people are in public and how they behave in sort of behind the scenes too. That's it from us this week. We'll be back next Monday. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, head over to farmpolicy.com to check out our other podcasts, where we will help you get through all of those hours in lockdown. Hear personal stories from intelligence operatives from around the world in our series, I Spy. And hear first-hand accounts from the fight against climate change in our newest podcast, Heat of the Moment, which is produced in partnership with the Climate Investment Funds. I'm Amy McKinnon. And I'm James Palmer. Our show is produced by Darcy Palder and is edited by Rob Sachs. Our web team includes Laurie Kelly and Kelly Kimball. The executive producer for news and podcasts at Foreign Policy is Dan Efron. Until next time, please remember to wash your hands. And don't touch your face. <laughs>